0: Isn't it working? Is it off? Um Is it on, Paul? It is on. Testing, testing. It's the green one's not working. Green one's not working. Is that a thumbs up or a thumbs down? We can hand off. What? We can do hand off. Not well. They uh, really left him back. Like mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, I do. <laughs> 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 All right. So
1: this isn't working. check. check. No. Testing, it testing, testing. Touch. Okay. So good afternoon, survivors. <laughs> Thumbs up. Hello. Thank you for staying. I hope more will come back in. It feels like at the end of the apocalypse this is what's left. <laughs> um, so we have a really interesting session for you. We've been um, scrambling some slides to take on some issues that were discussed today and like uh, Dimitri said, all of our thunder has been stolen. Like everything's been said. However, True. There's some other stuff that we hope to share with you. So, we're going to first have uh, introduce each other, and then I'm going to share some slides, and then we're going to comment on the slides in real time. So, Sweta, sure. please introduce yourself.
2: My name is Sweta Sneha. I am the founder and executive director for healthcare management and informatics at Kennesaw State University.
0: Hi, I'm Steve Muir. I've been uh, doing, studying, and um, teaching improvement in healthcare now for 30 years. I've worked at six different health systems, including Chief Quality Officer at a system outside of Atlanta. I have a PhD dissertation entitled Quality Improvement Implementation in Hospitals. I teach at Rush in Chicago, and for the last 17 years, I've been attached to the hip of a, a database, a, a retrospective comparative database that Vizient has of 1,100 hospitals now that uh, send us on a monthly basis all of their inpatient and hospital-based outpatient data.
1: And I'm Paul Barish. I'm an anesthesiologist, intensive care physician, researcher, I've worked in four continents, studied about 18 countries, um, advised several startup companies, and work with governments to help improve the safety and quality of care. So let's start with that. This is the four major reports that you all should be familiar with they show the epidemiology of the fact that we harm a lot of people in hospitals and in the community, perhaps as much as 10%, maybe more. Despite all the work that's happened in the last 20 years, we still harm about 10% or more. Um, Despite all the digital health that you've heard about this morning, we still harm about 10% or more. So we have some serious implementation gaps, which you'll hear about today. So this is the quadruple aim. You heard about it earlier. What I want to highlight here is this question that how do we actually deal with improvement while still enhancing the quality of life for providers? So how do we deal with this data challenge that you've heard about today and not burn out the docs, not lead to the massive increases of self-harm with drugs, alcohol, and suicide, and the resignation that we're hearing about? So Steve, you spend a lot of time across a lot of major healthcare systems. The crux of the quadruple aim, is it working?
0: Is it working? I don't know if it's working. So first of all, if you take a look at at improvement, the improvement journey we've gone on, even before COVID, we weren't improving. If you look at observed mortality over time since 2019, observed uh, readmissions, observed length of stay, complications, we're not improving. We're not getting better. Why not? Uh, I think that you know, we, we, we've forgotten about Donabedian's very simple model of a structure process outcome, that if you have the right structure, you're gonna um, then have the right processes, which leads to the right outcomes. I also think COVID has not helped it either. I mean, we, what about we, if we have the right data sets? Won't quality get better? Uh, you, yes. One of the most um, uh, um, important, but forgotten steps in the data is that um, it's not the data, It's the insights that you can get from the data. And most organizations right now are getting data or information and not insights. Information, for example, comes in dashboards and scorecards and they go to the leaders and then we expect our leaders to understand how improvement occurs and that's not happening.
1: You stole my next slide. So this is the father of every industry you've ever worked in, every car you've driven, every phone you've used. Are you familiar with Deming? This yes. is the backbone of everything. We don't teach this in healthcare. This is the backbone of every industry. These principles of the client, the system, variation, theory, and leadership. Why is it so hard, Sweda?
2: Healthcare is complex. Healthcare is not one thing. So most of the other industries, so you know, I was sharing with you that I, before I came to academia, I was actually working with PricewaterhouseCoopers after my undergrad in computer science. So I was a student of processes and work systems and how they should interact healthcare is those processes work were, were complex but healthcare is a conundrum and i say a conundrum because it truly is one it has um, health systems with one need it has the pairs with a different kind of need and and then the patients which is one of the most underutilized resource in in the health system and then you have put in in that mix, put the the pharmaceutical firms, the clinical trial firms, and everything else with with the health tech that's going on. And you have this mix of stakeholders who are actually pulling on what the quality outcome should mean for each one of them. So hence, the processes are not simple, and we haven't honestly spent much time understanding and laying out the processes so as to take it to the next step, to improving it.
1: So my fundamental challenge to all of you is, do you think that you work in learning health systems? Do your systems address the fundamental building blocks of a true learning system? Steve?
0: I, you know, I think that there are models out there that that have worked. I've, what I've seen in, in uh, you know the eleven 1, hundred hospitals is we have we have systems that do well. So when I say we're not improving, that's on average. There are organizations that are improving. Are, they're a minority. Are they, they're a minority, and are they learning systems? I think they're actually they're taking the complexity of healthcare and they're making it more simple. They're saying, how do we figure out how to improve in spite of all spite of, all of mm-hmm. this complexity?
1: Mm-hmm. So is it hype? Is all this stuff hype? The stuff we heard today about the EMR solving our problems, the gaps? No, you know,
0: let me, let me um, point out what the quadruple aim. The fourth aim is the, um, uh, is the staff, is, mm-hmm. is the well-being of the staff. <laughs> yes. uh, Brian Sexton at Duke's doing a lot of great research on, on understanding emotional well-being and emotional exhaustion. And what he's found is an emotional exhaustion leads to and can predict almost anything you want in there. It can predict and help you figure out how to improve the health status of patients, how to improve population health, how to decrease costs. Right now after COVID, our emotional exhaustion of the nursing staff in particular is at an all time um, high right now. So there's a paper published this week
1: in the Society of Internal Medicine, SGIM, which shows that the burnout amongst physicians is is equivalent to soldiers coming back from Afghanistan as it relates to PTSD. Yeah, I'm not surprised.
0: So I think this is the answer. I think this is one of the answer. What he found that Brian Sexton did is that during the pandemic, when physicians were not allowed to go into the hospital and they used telehealth more, their emotional exhaustion actually went down while the nurses went up. Also think about this, the nurses support the nursing assistants and everybody else, they're taking jobs across the street at the burrito place because they can get more money and they don't have to deal with um, patients. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Is it just
1: about money? We'll talk about that. So this is the advisory board arguing that, you know, in 2021, Francis, telehealth was the key issue for executives. Not anymore. As if it's like a binary, one thing or another, right? So now workforce is the key issue, it is. not telehealth. It is. So have we solved the telehealth issues, Sueda?
2: I don't think we've solved the telehealth issue it's just that we the the paradigm has shifted to workforce because like um, we we've seen earlier the mass exodus of nursing workforce from healthcare is really crumbling the health system that was already on its knees and one of the uh, one of the large health systems in Atlanta that I that we've been working with for the past few years we are in the midst of putting this this platform, which is a virtual nurse platform, much like taking or re- alleviating the exhaustion from the providers, we're trying to do the same for the nursing workforce, so as to curtail some of the uh, the, so the problems of associated How many of with you it.
1: surprised about the great resignation of nurses, honestly now.
2: No, no, no not none at all. How many of you knew? <laughs>
1: that we were treating nurses badly for a really long time. Of let's course. be honest about it, yes. okay? So let's not, like, play this game that COVID suddenly caused this, okay? We've exasperated it, for sure. We've been abusing them for a long yes. time. I mean, I know that sounds yes. like a really harsh statement, but that's not far from the truth. Not far no, from the truth. So we've just published all. one of the largest studies, two and a half million patient catchment error. The number one reason why nurses are quitting is because they've been mistreated, not because they've not been paid well. It's because they don't feel they're being listened to. It's because they're being shat upon. It's because mm-hmm. they're being ignored in their processes. So I love this slide. So, I mean, we've had these signals for years and yet it took COVID to remind us that we have a serious problem. Sorry, is this too much? I'm sorry. It was four o'clock. I thought I needed something to wake you guys up. You know. All right, so four questions. So what do we know about telehealth and telemedicine users? So let's talk about the human factors evil question.
2: Yeah. You
1: and I talked about it in the break. Yes. Let's talk about why there's so many issues around the lack of integration, lack of HCI, lack of human factors.
2: So how many of you have heard of this term called human-computer interaction and why it's important to any kind of tech dev? Not one hand. Not one hand. Um, so Human-computer interaction, and just to give you a very short, uh, a very brief summary of that, is what enables certain technology and certain kind of applications and certain kind of software platforms to be meaningful to you versus being cumbersome. So how many of you are iPhone users, Apple users? Okay. How many times have you actually read an iPhone manual before turning the phone on? I just
0: just talked to my daughter.
2: True. I think that's True. a workaround. But. True. <laughs> True. But you remember the first time Steve Jobs actually came around and, and, and really just slid his finger and there was and that's how iPhone was born. And that's that to me is the zenith of human computer interaction. The it, zen or the zenith? the zenith okay. of it so so for in in my mind if we can build health systems and telehealth systems which can be that intuitive and doesn't come in the way of actually taking care of patients we will we will see a lot more adoption so right now we have one on one communication what we would like to see eventually and in going into the the realm of uh, remote patient monitoring is that we are surrounded by sensors, and they communicate with the providers without interfering with the patients, and that will actually improve insights gathered from the data, and not just not just a it, whole lot of information coming from it. Right?
0: I, I know you, but, but quickly, yeah. that, that's interesting, because isn't that the exact same thing we talked about EMRs 20 years ago? We did. And, and EMRs, I think, are causing more emotional oh, exhaustion of right course. now than...
1: Steve. We talk about patient-centeredness, and we had a great talk now by, I don't see him in the room, He stepped out. Do you think the system is centered around your needs as a patient, as a father of patients? No, not... No. No, does anybody not think the system that takes care of them is centered around their needs? Nope. So maybe we should stop using that term, because clearly it means differently to all the academics, including myself, who keep on writing this stuff, <laughs> versus the, you know, what, what we actually feel in the system. Why is there such a gap between the theory and the practice, why is it so hard to make it truly central around it, the needs? It goes back to the, the question
0: between medical care and healthcare. So um,
1: this is a really like this is a lovely Canadian model, which argues that patient-centeredness begins with patients complaining. Then we give them information. <laughs> then we listen to them. Then we actually consult with them. And then finally, we do what's called experience-based co-design. Yeah. So co-design, what does that ring a bell when you hear that word?
2: It is truly to bring, bring the users to the table before you start building something. I mean, imagine really smart scientists from MIT building a cockpit for a pilot without ever con- consulting with them. Yeah, that's what we have been doing. That's how EMRs were launched. We built the first, the first set of EMRs without ever consulting with the physicians. And of course, there was a little bit of a mutiny because of that. So 30
1: years ago, Paul Batalda and others at Dartmouth, and Steve knows him well, developed this model called the Clinical Microsystem. Have any of you heard about this? There's an IOM report about this in 2006. The idea was that everything should be centered around the patient and the team, and these microsystems should have clear core values. It's a really powerful concept. You've heard about it hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. And?
0: And it's still an ideal.
1: (laughs) It's still an ideal. So this is from Paul Batalden. this idea that co-production means integrating the patient into the journey, mm-hmm. into the science, into the every step of the way, um, the co-production model. Why is it so difficult though?
0: I, th- I think healthcare is, a, it, it's a large, gigantic ship that's very yeah. difficult to move. Now, I think COVID is maybe could Be the accelerator that that could help us, particularly with digital health and trying to get this to be more patient-centered. So this is the
1: science of human factors. It's been around for 100 years. Every other discipline except healthcare uses this regularly. (laughs) It speaks to everything around the design of devices, interfaces, buildings, environments, organizational cultures, system architectures. I can go on and on and on. But the fact that most of you haven't heard about it is a gap in what we're talking about here, right? So what does that mean? It means if we're going to design for humans, we have to use the science of industrial engineering for designing devices. Again, how many of you use UX technologies for designing your telemedicine or telehealthcare devices?
2: We have a winner.
1: We have a winner. So, this is the backbone of other industries. Why are we ignoring most of this in healthcare? I don't understand why. Every pump that we use, every bed, we use the same framework. Of course. So why is the healthcare companies are not utilizing these engineering skill sets? The steps are very clear. Needs assessment, solution selection, implementation, monitor and sustain. This book from Donald Norman, one of the forefathers of industrial design, argues that if you design a system to fail, guess what? It's going to fail, right? What does Paul Bataldon like to say?
0: Every system is designed perfectly to get the outcomes it gets.
1: So are we surprised that our healthcare system looks the way it looks today? So... This is some work that I've spoken to some of you here. So this is, I think, the largest trial of its kind. It's 5,000 patients. It's a a project that we did at Methodist. Um, Over a period of three years, we interviewed 400 patients and users. Um, And what we're able to show is a variety of things. But most importantly, the readmissions at 90 days went down, the satisfaction of the patients went up, and the satisfaction of the clinicians went up. Does anybody know of any good trial that's shown anything remotely related to that? Which one? Okay. It is post-surgery, uh, home-monitoring, uh, virtual care in Australia with impressive results in red reduction in the admission. Fabulous. But this is not exactly telephone, so we're not talking about... Education. No, we're talking about mobile health apps. Yes. It's yep. a little bit different, so it's easy to evaluate, easy to build, easy to deploy the scale. Easier, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but the question that came up here, and Francis and I were talking about this before, so th- the company is called CareSense. And Methodist hired them to develop the technology, and then they hired me to be the external evaluator. So here's the question. Is it possible to develop a telehealth app with a company and not have biased results? Or is that, by definition, conflicted? Francis, what do you think? That's the beginning, right? That's not the end. Yeah. Right. Yes. the uh, you know, of publishing beyond
0: what the IRB is Absolutely. So part of the data that you ignore
1: is that part of the um, So here's another piece of work that we did. We, we realized during the pandemic that providers and patients did not know how to use simple telehealth, like where to put their face, where to put their microphone, do you ever have these challenges in your systems? People couldn't hear it. Now, how many of you have seen examples or guidelines for this in your own systems? It's really interesting, because this is not rocket science. And yet, simple thing is how, where to put the camera, where to put the microphone. Again, simple human factors, simple environmental stuff. OK, question number two. What do you need to know, Steve, about the system in order to make sure that the system around the patient and the provider supports the telehealth intervention?
0: Well, you have to, um, first of all, I, 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 it was discussed earlier, but regulation, re- regulatory um, uh, reimbursement um, has to, can't be standing in the way to all of this. I mean, we we have a real huge issue on our hands right now. Every every executive team that I go and talk with, they can't find staff. They can't find staff internally and everything else. We've got to figure something different to be able to do this. And I, I really do think that, this could work. It's just it. It has to be done, um, and, and I'm not sure how you can do that without some sort of regulation. But it has to be done so that it can get in and
2: be used. So I uh, and I agree with you, Steve. I agree with you, Steve. But I I and I do feel that sometimes the regulations get in our way of actually innovating and getting things done and moving the needle on it. Uh, no, but telehealth I mean it's been around for for decades
1: actually, actually hundred years
2: 100. the ATA has been around for a hundred years yet today we are talking about how this can sustain itself. I think that's a fallacy. I really think that we we need we need to start having a conversation about how we can. How we can have the right kind of money put into place? How can we how can we support our physicians and how can we support the quality outcomes? Well, of the let, let me program. ask you this. Okay,
1: go I ahead. I to respond to this. So this was published last week. The duplication over one year went from thirty-three percent of notes to fifty-four percent. Forty-five percent of EMR data was completely duplicated and of no use. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it took one clinician seeing ten patients a day to go through ninety pages in order to get the vital information.
0: Yes, well, I also wanna, I also wanna say that, you know, the database that, that we run shows hundreds and hundreds of thousands of telehealth uh, visits that were um, coded, and those have gone back down. We're a little bit up where we were before COVID. Why is that the case? Why did, did we not see the value of telehealth during COVID and continue to uh, keep those telehealth visits uh, up, up How where did the work?
1: engineers who design these EMR design a system where 50 percent of the data is totally cut and paste. and
0: unnecessary? Cut and paste.
1: Do your systems allow cut and paste?
2: I mean those are workarounds, but we shouldn't. 50 percent. I mean, think about it. This we, is not really the should, margins. we shouldn't have those requirements which are not. Which are not needed. So you're making things required. Like we had, okay. we had physicians going right. through alert fatigue. So here's my next question but Do right. you know yeah. if any
1: papers have shown that EMRs improve the quality of safety of care?
2: None. Have you seen?
0: Well, there are papers, but I don't know if they're actually good <laughs> in Anybody terms disagree? of. agree <laughs> with that statement.
1: So that's good. So we we last year published, uh, we looked at 583 articles, and we could find no real hard evidence based on a Cochrane-based, evidence-based model. So there was some evidence, I'm not saying there wasn't, but it wasn't particularly robust. It was a a weak level of evidence. And and what's interesting is that almost all these studies ignore the US HHS recommendation for applying human factors to EMR and to usability testing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So none of this is particularly new. Um, It's at least five to eight years where the FDA has given recommendations, voluntary, not mandatory, to design EMRs according to a certain set of standards, like you would a a pump or a drug or something like that.
0: You know, I I do want to point out that when you're talking about the EMR um, effectiveness, we have to talk about against what? I mean, if it's against paper, uh, of of course, you know, most organizations, most clinicians probably say, "I'm, I'm... I, I don't want to go back to paper. It's just that we have not developed, I think, Sueda, yes. so you've So is the problem mentioned. that we yes,
1: just don't I have agree. the right research method, Francis? Is that the problem? That the EMRs are really, really effective? We're just clueless about how to no. measure
2: it? That's it? Is that the problem? I don't think so. John? Yeah. So if the system I mean, meaningful use, for one, two, and three were
1: of the patient is better and probably, uh, the, you know, the Medicare Advantage model is a, a move in that direction, but we still have a huge complexity.
0: I was going to say the same thing. It's the EMRs are very well designed to generate a bill that will be supported, has all the elements that are required.
1: Absolutely. So now I want to move to another concept. So this is a fundamental building block of human factors. What it argues is that there's the work that the clinicians do, that's the work as done. Then there's the work that's imagined by the executives, then there's the work that's documented in the record, and then there's the work that's disclosed to everybody else that's not in the record. The gap in those works is the gap of implementation. Does that make sense? Sueta?
2: With one of the, the health systems in North Georgia. And the CEO of the health system was really, really happy because he would see e-prescriptions going out through the zoo, They were he was very happy with the adoption. And then he wanted, we wanted to establish best practices and, and we dug a little deeper, only to realize that the that the So yes, there were um, a bunch of e-prescriptions that were going out every day, but, we, but it wasn't going out from the physicians as imagined or as it should have been. There were huge workarounds. So if somebody were to take that and build something on top of it, of course it would have been completely off. What
1: about all the stuff that's not in the record, the processes, the decisions, that's not written down? Yeah. When when I I do investigations of adverse events, the EMRs have made it really, really hard to understand what actually happened because the language is poorer, the documentation is weaker, so it's very difficult to do a forensic analysis Mm -hmm. because all that stuff, which used to be in the paper record, or at least some of it, is not there now. Um, So this is Pascal Carrion's work from Wisconsin, what she argues is that if you want better outcomes you have to focus on the social, cognitive, and physical environment that interfaces between the work system, the doc, the nurse, the pharmacist, their organization, their technology, EMR is over there, but if you ignore the processes, the social technical processes, it doesn't matter what you put in the EMR, you're never going to get consistently great outcomes. So that's the foundational building blocks of human factors, right? Mm-hmm. So here's what we do for that. We do process mapping and task analysis. Mm-hmm. Here's how we design our systems. Um, this is what it looks like. Is it, have any of you ever done process mapping? Every engineer does it, it's 101, mm-hmm. right? Here's what it looks like, cardiovascular care. Here's what it looks like um, in the operating room. We've been doing this for 40 years. None of this is new. This is how every company that designs devices does, otherwise they can't get stuff through the FDA. We do mapping metrics. Imagine doing this for a telemedicine or telehealth device. Imagine that for a moment. I've never seen a company follow this this way, or at least not talk about it. Perhaps they're doing it in secret, but, but this is how we design devices for rigor and sustainability. Um, so, question number three. How do we integrate what we know, Steve, from users uh, when we implement. So how do we get the user's input to understand the implementation challenges of the telehealth?
0: I think Sweta mentioned earlier, we ask them. That's pretty novel. No. Well, I, when I mean, do we ask them, though? Uh, we ask them after we've already um, uh, created what we're creating and selling what we're selling. And and not, I'm, I'm not trying to say that we don't ask. We, we do ask some of them, but we, we need more widespread asks. Yeah. So... This is something we wrote 14 years
1: ago about the risk assessment that needs to be done in telehealth and human factors design. Are you guys familiar with this tool to design telehealth or telemedicine? It's a fundamental risk management framework that we borrowed from nuclear engineers. This is straightforward, it's required in other industries. Again, it's a foundational framework to make sure that by the time you get to a prototype, you've already addressed the risks and the hazards that are already based inside the system. Here's some paper that we just published that's coming out now um, in which we use FEMA methods. These are the methods that aviation engineers use to see if the plane's gonna crash or the escalator will come down or a ship will will come apart. It's a fundamental engineering technique which is used, but now we're applying it to RPM around COVID-19 in Italy during the pandemic. All right, Suera. what else to consider about monitoring and sustaining existing or newly implemented programs? In short, how do we sustain our telehealth interventions? What's gonna keep it going?
2: I think the biggest would be if we can put the incentives into place, because our incentives keep varying all over the map. And that leads to, of course, you know, we, have, we have seen how physicians have been exhausted by alert fatigue, I'm hearing about emotional exhaustion. If we do not have the incentives put into place at the, for our physicians and caregiving team, it's not going to be sustainable.
1: Our favorite guy. What would you want to say about him?
0: Uh, Vietus Donabedian has the job that I've always searched for, which is he got paid to think and write his thoughts down. That's what I'll say about him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the Donabedian model, he was a Lebanese who worked at the University of Michigan who essentially was the foundational person for health services research. This is how we look at complex systems. And what this means in practice and this is from a paper that we published a few years ago, that if you want telemedicine to work, it's very different if you change the policy, if you change the service, if you change the intervention. The more upstream you go, the less resolution, the less precision you have in the outcome, which is to say that if you change CMS rules for telehealth, while it's good generically, it doesn't actually help telemedicine improve outcomes. Does that make sense? If you wanna actually improve telemedicine outcomes, you have to focus on the interface between the device and the patient, not just on the financial aspects, right? That's right. So when you conflate these things, you get confusion between where you are investing in the process and why the outcomes are so variable. Here's another example. So this is this technique that we use. Uh, So this is a whole telemedicine device process. These are all the things that we apply in order to make sure that the device adapts to the needs and the barriers of the users and different type of personas that's different type of users. Young, old, men, women, children, etc. This is a very complex journey and it takes a while, but it actually works. Um, It works all the time because you very quickly find out if the device is going to fail early on before you go to market. All right, implementation. We've talked about implementation, right? So this is a CFIR model. This is a standard model that we use for applying health services systems outcomes. Can you imagine if we apply it to telehealth and we find out what are the reasons why a telehealth device or service does not succeed? And what that means is we have to look at these things, right, penetration, fidelity, costs. We have to look at efficiency and safety, and most importantly, the client, satisfaction, functum, symptomatology. Can we do this in telehealth, Sueda?
2: We we could if we have the right uh, right kind of processes and right kind of structures put into place. So we've been talking a lot about the processes and how it interfaces and the human-computer interactions. Have you heard of uh, this this whole structure called the work systems method? So, in, uh, and I I believe if we can have the right kind of work systems, and work systems are not just processes, but it's... It's, it's a little bit beyond processes. It's, it's really the ecosystem that has processes, technology, people, um, the workarounds, and everything else into place. And if we can create, if we can have an understanding of the whole ecosystem and we can put these structures into place, I think we can make, we can make it work. It's, the magic is going to be in, in bringing everybody into So I the ask table. the question,
1: how do we make sure telehealth actually creates a learning health system for the patient, the doc, the nurse, and the manager?
0: Well, let me just let me just tell you how the leading organizations are improving: um, centralization and simplification. So, um, for example, if you want to do improvement efforts, what I'm finding in hospitals is that this department does improvement in mortality. This department does improvement in length of stay. This department does improvement in patient centeredness. They're all related, and so if talking you to bring each other, sharing. The, well, they're they're supposed to. <laughs> yes, but if you bring all of that together, and I was just looking at this, there's some great concepts here, but you've got to translate those in a simple way um, to be able to, and in a centralized way to be able to get things done.
1: So, who's who's in charge of all that learning? Who's Who, in, who's collating it all? Who's making sure that you it's mean the,
0: to, uh, at, in in the executive suite or? Well, there's a, a support uh, centralized support group typically led by the chief quality officer or chief medical officer that should be the support for all improvement across the system. But we've got that- I thought that's the CMIO's job. um, Well, then when you go into most organizations, (laughs) you've not only got the CMIO doing it, you've got the CNO doing it, you've got the COO doing it. Yeah, Working together. Did you say working together? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I did,
1: I did. So here's an example. We did this system, this is in Northern Italy. Um, This is during the height of the pandemic. You've all heard that Lombardy system failed. Um, next door to Lombardy, the region next to it in Modena, um, using telehealth and using wide engagement of the community we were able to uh, reinforce the hospital so they didn 't fail so Telehealth worked here not just in the devices but it was a social technical aspect. It was the community willing to embrace these things. It wasn't just the technology. So let's spend the final minute thinking about, in addition to all the things we've talked about, what do you think right now? What are the most important take-home messages to help deal with some of the barriers to adoption, the barriers to sustaining these telehealth changes? Sweda first, and then Steve.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll start by giving a very small example of uh, of where I have seen it truly succeed. So, So think about it, this is, This is a study that we did on the ageing diabetics in China. Um, A population that's very, very difficult to work with, I would say, because they they had very set ideas on how they should be monitored or not. And we we went through this whole exercise of collecting information about them running through profile and persona, and, and then we created this platform that allowed them to be mon- monitored, but at the same time, we create a so- created a social structure for them. So it's essentially, what that meant was every day when they were being monitored for a certain condition, they were almost getting gamification points with that. And they would they would discuss those points with their peer group, and, and then these sort of got competitive and then they, they sort of wanted to improve their points associated with their condition and that led to improvement and, and that led to wide scale adoption. So if we can build structures where there, where there is social cognitive theory that's building a whole ecosystem of, of people where technology supports their outcomes we will be able to succeed so in
1: the language that steve
0: and i would call that change management right
2: change management is a part of it it's not all of it
0: yeah steve yeah the only thing i'll add is that uh, with the right platform uh, i think the time is right now so uh, i i think that small test of change will produce better quadruple aim uh very quickly and we just need to we need to do it but it has to be the right platform
1: Any questions or comments? No questions, one question, one question, one question. Dimitri?
0: it I agree and thank you for it guys today because you know, I think it's a treasure for health
1: systems development Thank you thank, thank you thank you thank you for your attention
0: As they said at the end, this truly is the...